0: Well, thank you, all of you, for coming here on a beautiful, beautiful Saturday afternoon to hear about the nuclear apocalypse. (laughs) And I cannot guarantee it, but the probability is very high when you leave this session, the sky will still be blue, and it will be a glorious, glorious evening. But this is an important subject, and thank you for coming to hear about it. It's also a very appropriate subject for the festival of dangerous ideas. I would argue that nuclear weapons are probably the most dangerous idea that mankind has ever had. And uh, these weapons are basically machines, incredibly dangerous machines, carefully designed to kill people. Sadly, We have forgotten about them, for the most part. And to the degree that nuclear weapons are in the news at all, they tend to be about Iran, which doesn't have nuclear weapons, Um, and not about the countries that not only have them, but have them ready to go at a moment's notice. This summer is also a very good time to be talking about nuclear weapons, because this summer is the 70th anniversary of the dawn of the atomic era. It was in July of 1945 that the first nuclear device was detonated, and it was on August 6th, 1945, that the world saw the first city destroyed by a nuclear weapon. So I want to just talk about Hiroshima for a moment before I talk about my book. On August 6, 1945, it was an ordinary morning in Hiroshima, Uh, there was absolutely no sense in the city that it was about to vanish. Uh, America had been destroying one Japanese city after another with firebombs. We destroyed dozens of them. But the populations of those cities were warned in advance by air raid sirens because the American bombing missions tended to have 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 planes. At 8.15 in the morning, a single bomber appeared over Hiroshima. And there were no air raid sirens. People were going about their daily ordinary routine. And then there was a flash. And everything was changed in an instant. Very quickly, 80,000 people were dead and two-thirds of the buildings in Hiroshima were destroyed, practically in an instant. The survivors were confronted with a situation in which more than 90% of the doctors and nurses had been killed. Almost all of the hospitals had been destroyed, and so the survivors were pretty much left on their own. In Tokyo, they were surprised that suddenly Hiroshima's radio stations had gone off the air. And when they called up Hiroshima, no one answered the phone, no one answered the telegraph. All kinds of rumors began to spread that something terrible had happened to Hiroshima, but the Japanese uh, Ministry of Defense didn't believe it because no planes had been spotted on a bombing run heading towards Hiroshima. So in order to dispel the rumors, they got a young officer to take off in an airplane from Tokyo to fly to Hiroshima and see why Hiroshima wasn't responding to any communication. And the young officer approached Hiroshima and at a distance of 100 miles saw an enormous black cloud heading into the sky. Now that mushroom cloud was composed essentially of the ruins of that city. The dust. When that plane circled the city, the officer was shocked to see that it was largely gone. Now, this was truly a revolutionary world event. Many cities were destroyed throughout the Second World War. Cities had been destroyed in warfare going back thousands of years. What was different about the destruction of Hiroshima is that it only required one plane and one bomb. The United States had introduced a whole new efficiency into slaughter. And there was a realization that destruction had just become very cheap. It's important to keep in mind that this weapon that destroyed Hiroshima was remarkably crude, and inefficient as nuclear weapons go. It was the first one ever dropped on a city. It used highly enriched uranium for its destructive force. But it was such an inefficient weapon that almost 99% of the uranium-235 in the bomb harmlessly blew apart and never underwent nuclear fission. And of the roughly 1.4% of the uranium that actually did undergo fission, uh, most of it just turned into other radioactive elements. So when you think about what destroyed a major metropolitan area and killed 80,000 people and knocked down two-thirds of the buildings in an instant, it was about 7 tenths of a gram of uranium that turned into pure energy. Seven-tenths of a gram. And this weighs more than seven-tenths of a gram. So the most crude, inefficient, old-fashioned nuclear weapon was still capable of unimaginable destruction. And there was a United States senator who, after the destruction of Hiroshima, said, this is the most important thing that's happened since the birth of Jesus Christ. And I really think it wasn't hyperbole. So we've forgotten about these machines. And I certainly had forgotten about them. I mean, I grew up in the Cold War era. I was at university when it looked like a nuclear war might occur any day. And then the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union collapsed, and I stopped thinking about nuclear weapons. The origins of my book, Command and Control, lie with a visit that I had with the Air Force uh, about a decade and a half ago. And I was interested in the future of warfare in space. And I was spending time with an Air Force unit called the Air Force Space Command. It's not out of Star Trek, it really exists. And they are doing experiments with laser beam weapons and particle beam weapons and all kinds of new weapons that could destroy enemy satellites. And I was interested in this. And it turned out that a lot of the officers in the Air Force Space Command had begun their careers as launch officers in, with nuclear-tipped missiles, with intercontinental ballistic missiles. So when we weren't talking about laser weapons, I started asking them questions about the Cold War and they started telling me stories about nuclear weapons during the Cold War. And I just couldn't believe some of these stories. Stories of all kinds of accidents and mistakes and near misses that had never been written about. But now that the Cold War was over, they felt comfortable talking to me about. And one of those stories really stuck in my mind. And one of the officers had been there that day. There was a Titan II missile that was in a silo in the little town of Damascus, Arkansas, in the foothills of the Ozarks in September of 1980. And they were doing routine maintenance on the missile. So they had a work platform right near the top of the missile, and this missile was the biggest missile the United States ever built. It was about the size of a 10-story building. And there was a worker doing the sort of thing that they did every single day without thinking about it. He had to just unscrew a pressure cap and put a little nitrogen gas in to repressurize one of the fuel tanks. Routine maintenance, like putting air in your tires before a long road trip. And while he was on the steel work platform, the socket fell off of his wrench. And the socket fell, and it dropped, and it hit the steel work platform, and it bounced. And he reached for it and just missed it. And then the socket fell in a very narrow gap in between the steel work platform and the missile. The socket fell about 70 or 80 feet, hit the wall of the silo, ricocheted, and then hit the missile. And when it hit the missile, it pierced a hole in its metal skin. And suddenly, there were thousands of gallons of highly flammable, highly explosive rocket fuel pouring into the silo. And the reason that this was important is that on top of that Titan II missile was the most powerful nuclear warhead the United States ever built. That one warhead on that missile was three times more powerful than all the bombs used by all the militaries in the Second World War combined, including both atomic bombs. So, one warhead. And when you think of the images that you've seen of World War II and all the destroyed cities and all the explosions that had to level these cities throughout Japan, throughout Germany, one warhead in Damascus, Arkansas, more than three times as powerful. And once this missile was pierced, and there was an explosive fuel filling the silo, the Air Force had no idea what to do. Missiles like this had been in silos, ready to be launched for about 16 years, and nothing like this had ever happened before. Workers had dropped tools. They dropped flashlights. The tools would go all the way down to the bottom of the silo. It was a total hassle. You'd have to go down there, get the tool, climb back up. But nothing like this had happened before. And what ensued was a desperate effort to save the missile and prevent it from exploding and prevent losing control of this extraordinarily powerful nuclear warhead. Now, when I heard that story, I thought, that is unbelievable. Why have I never heard this story before? And after spending time with the Air Force, I went and started reading all these news clippings about this accident. And it was a big news story for about two days in the United States. And then it was forgotten. And the reason it was forgotten is that the Air Force and the Pentagon insisted that there was no possibility whatsoever that the nuclear warhead could have detonated. Everything was actually under control. And I did more research, and I did searches through the Freedom of uh, Information Act, and I found out that that was a lie, and that that very warhead had been cited in a top-secret study just a few years before the accident as being vulnerable to a full-scale explosion during an accident. So I started out to write this book that was going to be a minute-by-minute retelling of this nuclear weapons accident because there was extraordinary heroism by young 19, 20-year-old airmen who risked their lives and wound up being injured in order to try to save this missile and prevent the state of Arkansas literally from going up in flames. Um, And as you know, that did not happen. So I'm giving away that part of the ending of the book. (laughs) And if it had happened, it would have... This sounds, again, like hyperbole, but when you get to nuclear weapons, hyperbole seems appropriate. It would have changed the course of history. Uh, The young governor of Arkansas at the time, Bill Clinton, most likely would have been killed, as would would have been uh, his wife and their young baby, Chelsea. And the Vice President of the United States happened to be not that far away in Arkansas that day. And if that warhead had detonated, it not only would have consumed Arkansas in firestorms, but it would have blanketed the eastern seaboard of the United States with lethal radioactive fallout. Still, even though you know that Arkansas didn't go up in flames, I think it's an incredible, incredible story. And I found in it so many themes that apply to other aspects of America's management of its nuclear arsenal. So I thought I would write a very short book about this one nuclear accident. And then I found more and more and more and more near misses in which we nearly had an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And I came to look at nuclear weapons in a very different way. Uh, they're so often portrayed as symbols of national might or of prestige. And what they really are are machines. And they're attached to other machines like missiles or bombers, which are linked to other machines like communications networks or computers. And every single machine ever invented by mankind is fallible. So it's hard to see how flawed human beings could ever invent anything that works perfectly. And I found again and again that these machines, in particular, would go wrong. Now, when an airplane crashes, it's a tragedy for the hundreds of passengers who are killed and their families. Airplane crashes are a rare event, but they do occur. If a nuclear weapon were to go wrong, the casualties would number in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions. So what started out to be a short book wound up being a rather long book about this hidden history, the hidden history of how America managed its nuclear arsenal. Now, what did I find? Well, I found that this is a very, very difficult technology to manage and that our nuclear weapons have been on the verge of slipping out of our control since the very beginning. I mentioned Hiroshima. The crew of the plane that carried the bomb to Hiroshima was so concerned that that weapon might detonate by accident and destroy the island of Tinian, which was one of America's most important air bases, that they violated orders And rather than arm the bomb before they took off, they waited until they had flown a safe distance from the island and armed the bomb midair. They couldn't trust it. A few days later, when we were planning to bomb another city with a nuclear weapon, the night before the bomb was to be landed on the plane, one of the engineers realized that a plug had been put into the bomb backwards and two wires were supposed to be plugged together and it couldn't be done. So violating orders in the middle of the night, he got a solder gun and started started soldering. Uh, He cut the cord and soldered a new plug onto it. And he was well aware as he was doing this that the type of bomb that was used against Nagasaki was highly vulnerable to an accidental detonation and a spark, a spark could have set it off. And that would have destroyed the island of Tinian. So that's how our experience with these weapons began. And there have just been a series of near misses ever since. Uh, One of the things that I found to be true, and that's one of the themes of my book, is that human beings are much better at creating complex technological systems than we are at controlling them and especially than we are at knowing what to do about them when something goes wrong. Now, during the Cold War, this was of existential importance. Within a decade of the destruction of Hiroshima, the United States had tested its first hydrogen bombs. We created weapons a thousand times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. And once the Soviet Union had its own nuclear weapons, an arms race began that seemed unstoppable. I interviewed former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who served in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and became an ardent opponent of nuclear weapons. He told me he was scared to hell when he was Secretary of Defense of something going wrong. And I asked him, how is it possible that in the early years of the Cold War the United States thought it needed 150, maybe 200 atomic bombs to totally destroy the Soviet Union, but by the time McNamara was Secretary of Defense, the United States had more than 30,000 nuclear weapons, a great proportion of them hydrogen bombs. And I asked Secretary of Defense McNamara, how did this happen? And his response was, to understand the nuclear arms race, all I can tell you is, each step seemed perfectly logical at the time. And step by step by step led to a place of total madness. Now, I mentioned how nuclear weapons become a symbol of national pride. The United States had 30,000. But the Soviet Union eventually had 40 to 45,000. And just managing this inventory of machinery was a remarkable challenge on both sides. So what my book looks at is the American effort to control its own weapons. And not through treaties or arms control talks. I mean, how did we make sure? We didn't lose one. How did we make sure that one wouldn't detonate by accident, couldn't be sabotaged, couldn't be used by one of our own officers without the authorization of the President of the United States? And it was a challenge. Uh, One of my favorite films is Dr. Strangelove, which is a farce about the nuclear arms race. But one of the problems with that film is that it depicted the officers and the Pentagon officials in charge of nuclear weapons as madmen eager to go to war and destroy their adversary. I interviewed a great many of them for my book, and the reality was actually more unnerving. Uh, none of them wanted to go to war. None of them wanted to use these weapons. And every one of them that I interviewed said that he was terrified that it might happen. These well-intended people lived under enormous stress. Those who understood the most about the weapons, the weapons systems, and the war plans were terrified by them. I spoke to McNamara about another nuclear weapons accident that was one of the closest that we've come to having a detonation on American soil. There was a B-52 bomber carrying two powerful hydrogen bombs on a routine flight and there was a fuel imbalance in the plane. And the plane suddenly started to break apart midair. And as the fuselage was spinning and the plane was spiraling downward, the centrifugal forces pulled a lanyard in the cockpit. And that was the lanyard that a crew member would pull if we were over enemy territory and wanted to drop our hydrogen bombs. Now, these bombs are machines. They're they're dumb machines. And in this case, these bombs didn't know they were over North Carolina, not the Soviet Union. And one of the bombs went through every one of its arming steps. And when it hit the ground, a firing signal was sent. It did not detonate full scale. But a single switch inside that bomb prevented this accidental detonation. That very switch was found to be defective in many other hydrogen bombs and was removed from service. And it was found to be defective when some ground crews removed the weapons from the bombers and saw that the weapons were fully armed. So in that case, if that bomb had had one of those defective switches, the state of North Carolina would have gone up in flames, and the radioactive fallout would have extended as far north as Washington, DC. And in speaking with McNamara about this, that would have been a big bummer. (laughs) Because John F. Kennedy had just taken office three days earlier and had given this stirring speech about the new frontier, and America was full of optimism. And we just came close again and again. As the Cold War progressed, there was a compression of time. If the United States had wanted to go to war with the Soviet Union in 1948, it would have taken four to five weeks for us to assemble all of our nuclear weapons, get them onto bombers, get the bombers in the position to attack. So even a surprise attack on the Soviet Union in the late 1940s would have taken a month and a half. By the 1960s, with nuclear weapons on missiles and nuclear weapons on missiles on submarines, you could make the decision to launch and the Soviets could hit Washington DC within maybe six or seven minutes after a submarine launched its missile and the United States could destroy Moscow in roughly the same time frame. That meant an incredible pressure on decision makers about what to do if they felt that they were under attack. The President of the United States might have as little as five minutes to decide whether to retaliate or not before Washington was completely destroyed. So in looking at these complex technological systems, one of the most important systems was our early warning radar system that would tell us if we were under attack. And the headquarters of this system was deep inside Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. The organization was called NORAD in charge of our early warning system. In 1960, a NORAD computers said the United States was under attack, and the certainty was over 90%. And there had to be a decision about whether to retaliate. The head of NORAD just could not believe that we were under attack. And he asked, where is Khrushchev, who was the head of the Soviet Union? And it just so happened that Khrushchev was in New York City for a meeting of the UN. And the head of NORAD did not call the president with the recommendation to retaliate because he took the leap of assuming that the Soviet Union would not attack the United States while its leader was in New York City. But I've spoken to people who were in that room and there was a real sense of panic. And officers were were asked to leave the room who were panicking because there was a real belief we were under attack. This is 1960. It turned out that what the computers had seen as a massive missile attack was the moon rising over Norway. In 1979, the same thing happened again. And in NORAD, on their screens was an incredible depiction. You've probably seen in movies these big screens of the world. They just saw all these Soviet missiles heading right towards the United States. And our bombers were put on alert and the missile crews were told to take out their keys and get ready to launch. But at NORAD, it just didn't make sense because there was no tension between the Soviet Union and the United States, and it just seemed bizarre that this would be an attack out of the blue. It turned out that somebody had accidentally put a training tape into the NORAD computer. And this was a training tape that was a perfect perfect reproduction of what an all-out Soviet attack on the United States would look like. So again, the President of the United States was never called, but they were quite relieved to find that tape. One year later, the same year as the Damascus accident, President Carter's National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, was woken up at 2 in the morning by his military aide, General William Odom. And General William Odom said, Sir... I believe we're under attack. The indications are there are 220 missiles heading towards the United States." And Zbigniew Brzezinski said, "'I want you to check that out and call me back. It's the middle of the night." This time, it made more sense. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. We had backed out of the Olympics. Cold War tensions had reached their peak since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and... Brzezinski looked over at his wife, who was asleep next to him in bed, and decided not to wake her up. Because if Washington, D.C. was going to be destroyed, he thought it best that she die in her sleep. The phone rang. It was his military aide, William Odom. And he said, sir, it turns out it's 2,200 missiles. And Brzezinski said, thank you. And Brzezinski got ready to call President Carter to advise a retaliatory strike against the Soviet Union. And before he could call the president of the United States, his military aide, William Odom, called for the third time in the middle of the night and said, I'm sorry, sir, false alarm. And they traced the false alarm to a faulty computer chip that cost 46 cents in a communications piece of communications equipment that was generating false signals of Soviet missiles. While I was in Melbourne the other day, someone came over to me after my talk. He was an American in his mid-60s. He said that he was on alert with his missile crew in that 1980 false alarm. The codes were sent to them to get out their keys out of their safe. He and his fellow launch officer put their keys into their control panels and looked at one another over a distance of about 12 feet and stood there for about 15 minutes waiting for the message to turn the key and launch. Titan II missile with one of those powerful warheads. And the thing about these missiles, both American missiles and Soviet missiles, is once, there's, once they're launched, there's no calling them back. So we came close. We came close again and again. And some of the people who I interviewed thought it was absolutely miraculous that given the 70,000 plus nuclear weapons that both sides had during the Cold War, that the Cold War ended without a single city being destroyed by a nuclear weapon, either by accident or deliberately. And a good amount of luck was responsible for that. Now, here, in Sydney, on a gorgeous, gorgeous Saturday afternoon, all this feels very remote, very far away. Feels like ancient history almost. But there are still 16,000 nuclear weapons in the world. And I can tell you, every one of those weapons is an accident waiting to happen or a potential act of mass murder. In the United States, in the last couple of years, we've had problems with our nuclear arsenal. One of our top generals was relieved of command for having a gambling problem and caught using counterfeit chips at a casino in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Another officer was relieved of command for getting drunk in Moscow and fraternizing with young women. Uh, Just this year, one of our launch officers was convicted and sent to prison because it turned out he was the head of a street gang that was dealing drugs and he was also convicted of rape. And he was one of these officers with the responsibility of putting the key into the control panel. Uh, It's important that everyone in Australia be concerned about these weapons. They are unique in that their effects do not at all respect national borders. Uh, Melbourne was at the heart of one of the most famous pieces of Cold War fiction, On the Beach, because it was one of the last cities in the world to survive an all-out nuclear war because it was so far south. But eventually, the nuclear fallout eventually reaches Melbourne. Um, These weapons affect everyone. The most recent studies show that if India and Pakistan engage in a nuclear war, and use only 50 to 100 atomic bombs, it will kill more than a billion people worldwide and have catastrophic atmospheric effects. So, these weapons, these machines, concern all of us. Now, what is to be done? I spent six years researching and writing command and control And I've spent two more years speaking about nuclear weapons and writing this new book, Gods of Metal. And it has not left me feeling apocalyptic. It has not left me feeling depressed. I am not heavily medicated. (laughs) It has left me concerned, as all of us should be, by this problem. And it's good to remember that right after the destruction of Hiroshima, there was worldwide revulsion towards nuclear weapons. There was worldwide agreement in the United States and Soviet Union that nuclear weapons should be abolished. The top military officials of the United States wanted to abolish nuclear weapons. And then the Cold War began. And the mad, mad arms race took hold. So these machines can be eliminated. Uh, There has been a treaty abolishing landmines and cluster munitions because they will disproportionately affect civilians but nuclear weapons more than any other weapon will disproportionately harm civilians. Nuclear weapons if they are ever used will violate the Geneva Convention which prohibits targeting and slaughtering innocent civilians. And again Australia, uh, this isn't irrelevant for you. You're one of half a dozen countries in the world where nuclear weapons have been detonated above ground. Uh, the British detonated about 12 nuclear weapons here in Montebello, uh, in carolinga uh, Thousands of servicemen were exposed to radiation. Uh, the British denied it. Australian pilots flew through the mushroom clouds, suffered terrible health effects. Uh, the British have never compensated. So there's not only that history here, but there's also a fair amount of plutonium that's still in the ground and scattered on the ground around Carolinga, and that stuff is going to be deadly. 250,000 to 500,000 years. One last thing and then I'll wrap up. There's also talk here of um, having a nuclear waste dump in South Australia and accepting the dangerous nuclear waste from all over the world and this is the festival of dangerous ideas, that's not only a dangerous idea, that's a remarkably bad idea. <laughs> I mean, human beings have had modern consciousness for 50,000 years, maybe, and agriculture for 10,000 years, and the notion that you can safely store this waste for two hundred fifty to 500,000 is absurd. And I mean, if you're eager to accept toxic waste from overseas, I'm glad to give you Donald Trump. And if he is your prime minister for a dozen years, he will do much less damage than accepting the plutonium residues from other countries. Now, other movements have succeeded against great odds to eliminate terrible harms. Uh, one of your citizens, Helen Caldecott, played a huge role in helping to end the nuclear arms race in the 1980s and the 1990s, leading massive demonstrations throughout the world against these weapons. And when I was born, there was apartheid. And Nelson Mandela was in prison. And the notion of him heading a free South Africa seemed absurd. Uh, When I was born, black people and white people couldn't stay in the same hotels in the United States. Couldn't marry legally. And today we have an African American president of the United States who is committed to abolishing nuclear weapons. So huge changes can happen. But they don't just happen. People need to make them happen. This problem seems so overwhelming, but small steps taken by lots of people can lead to a big change. And I would argue that if you care about this at all, maybe the first step to take is to make sure that this beautiful country, and I've been driving around it, it's so beautiful. And the notion of accepting Radioactive waste from all, all over the world is just so absurd that maybe that's a good place to start in reducing this existential risk. Thank you very much.
1: You. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Microphone there, microphone there. Please queue up and I'll come to you. If you've got a question or a comment, we'd love to involve you in the discussion. Uh, oh, gosh, so much to talk about, isn't there? Um, if I wanted to... So this is sort of past tense, the Cold War. But there are... We hope. There are... That's... That, there are thousands of missiles ready and poised, which could be pushed off within a minute. There are something like 5,000 nuclear missiles that America is a caretaker of, according to your book. Mm. So if I wanted to do an FOI request now, what would I find out about more recent accidents and all the things that you've documented in this book? Those human errors, those accidents at existing nuclear facilities?
0: Very little. Because they would not give you documents that pertain to the last... 10 or 15 years, certainly not significant documents, and we've had accidents. Uh, In 2007, we lost track of half a dozen thermonuclear weapons for a day and a half, and they could easily have been taken by terrorists. They were inadvertently put on a plane, and no one realized they were putting nuclear weapons on a plane, and the plane just sat unguarded. Uh, A few years ago, we had 50 of our missiles suddenly go offline which meant that the launch crews could not communicate with their missiles. And this sounds absurd, but they sent security officers to every one of the silos to make sure the missiles were still there. Because there was a a concern that someone had hacked into the system, and the silos have cameras, but they couldn't trust that what the cameras were showing was accurate. Mm. The head of the United States Strategic Command, who's recently left that position, gave a speech two months ago about his concerns about someone hacking into the nuclear command control system of the United States, or Russia, or China, and launching a missile. And our launch codes are generated by the NSA, and the the cryptography equipment for those launch codes are made by the NSA. And if Edward Snowden, a, a lowly private contractor, can get some of our most top secrets, there's no evidence that he got to our launch codes. But the danger still exists. It's just not being discussed.
1: Which, which, and that could be a very re- a real risk. This is the ultimate sab- terrorist sabotage, isn't it, to hack into the system controlling nuclear weaponry? There
0: was a film War Games made about it, you know, a while ago, and that would be, even if the hacker didn't want to launch something, That would be the ultimate hack, is to get into the nuclear command and control system of the United States. What's disturbing is that Russia's system is even more automated and computer dependent than that of the United States.
1: It doesn't take hackers to get into nuclear facilities though. As your new book, Gods of Metal, indicates, it takes a couple of passionate, peace-loving activists.
0: Yeah. My, My new book, Gods of Metal, is about a break-in at one of the most important nuclear weapons facilities in the United States. It's called the Y-12 National Security Complex, and it's where we store our bomb-grade uranium. Now, that Hiroshima bomb used about 144 pounds of bomb-grade uranium. At the Y-12 facility, they have about a million pounds. And if a terrorist wanted to steal enough uranium to make a very powerful nuclear weapon, it could fit in a gym bag, and there was a break-in in in 2012 at that facility, and there were three people who infiltrated and got right up to the wall of the building. Uh, One of them was a devout Catholic pacifist who was a great believer in St. Francis. Another was a Christian uh, pacifist anarchist, and the third was an 82-year-old nun. We are so lucky that it was pacifists who did this and so in the book I tell the story of this break-in but I also spent time with the plowshares movement which is a group of Christian pacifists in the United States who have been breaking into nuclear facilities with nuclear weapons for the last 30 years and if they can do it then people whose motives are much less benign can do it as well. So the book is an exploration of their philosophy uh, of pacifism and their resolute opposition to all nuclear weapons, but it's also a a look at the threat of nuclear terrorism today. And if you have a nuclear waste dump in South Australia, I guess I'm kind of fixated on this, uh, that has plutonium waste in it, um, you create the possibility of nuclear terrorism here.
1: We might pick up on that question in relation to your thoughts about nuclear energy as an alternative to coal-fired power stations, no. which is, you know, gaining traction around the world, that argument. Uh, thank you. A question at number two.
2: Thank you very much for the talk. Um, what do you know of Israel's uh, nuclear arsenal? Assuming that exists, isn't that likely to be <laughs> a great potential for some kind of deployment in the short term?
0: Thank you. Uh, In a nutshell, uh, the Israelis developed nuclear weapons with deliberate assistance from the French, who gave them the reactor technology. And there's some evidence, and I write about it in my my book, Gods of Metal, that Israel uh, was aided by stealing bomb-grade uranium from the United States. There's evidence that there was a break-in in in an American facility, uh, and that they got a significant amount of bomb-grade uranium that way. Israel has had nuclear weapons for over 40, I'm trying to think about, maybe almost 50 years, and I'm not defending their possession of nuclear weapons. I would love to see a nuclear-free Middle East, but they haven't threatened to use them. Uh, One of the reasons that Iran, in its own interest, shouldn't have nuclear weapons is that if Iran were to have a nuclear weapon, it would probably be more likely to be hit by nuclear weapons either by Israel or by the United States. Not to mention the risk of accident that every country that has these weapons has to keep in mind that they may be destructive to themselves, not just to their adversaries. So there has to be a nuclear-free Middle East. Right now, Israel is the only country that has nuclear weapons, and that process is going to be complicated, but it really needs to occur.
2: Question. Hi. Thanks, Eric. My name's is Aidan. I wanted to pick up on uh, your fixation with the storage question. Um, If you're proposing a a worldwide decommissioning of uh, thousands or tens of thousands of nuclear warheads, um, I suppose I wanted to ask what is the best place to put them? Um, Because it seems that in the most sparsely um, sparsely populated, uh, most geologically stable place in the world, which is Australia. Um, that's probably better than keeping them in silos or other temporary sort of storage facilities all around the rest of the world. So I just wanted to ask, what's your, what's your long-term proposed alternative storage if we do actually want to decommission uh, thousands of weapons around the world?
0: Good question. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to start with a flippant answer. And that would be, you know, Donald Trump has properties throughout the world. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a, he has an extensive real estate empire.
1: He's your front runner on the yeah. Republican side of things at the moment. And uh, he's not going to go there. <laughs>
0: I, um, I wish I had a good answer for you and I don't. Uh, how to handle nuclear waste is one of the great an- unanswered problems of the nuclear uh, power industry. And I don't know that it's been resolved. I mean the United States has spent billions of dollars uh, on a facility in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And you have to keep in mind a little bit of jingoism. We invented this technology, we perfected it, we spent billions of dollars uh, putting relatively low-level waste into caverns in New Mexico where it was guaranteed to be secure for at least 10,000 years. And uh, we've already had an explosion and massive contamination after 15 years. So I don't think anyone's fully answered this question, and no offense to Australia, but I don't believe you have. Thank could,
1: you.
2: Could I moment?
0: To yeah, please. please.
1: Very Just brief, point. because we've sure. got other people. So you've no, got but
0: please.
2: Just uh, I mean, the question in Australia is about um, the way up with coal, in particular, and there was a movement in Australia to try to put underground our coal waste, our carbon dioxide as well. Um, I've done the numbers roughly, and it turns out that uh, a tenth of a mill of uranium. Um, in energy terms is the equivalent of about five sw- Olympic swimming pools worth of carbon dioxide. Isn't that a harder underground storage problem to tackle, to kind of put the entire world's carbon dioxide underground than, than tiny little bits of uranium?
1: We might come back to that unless yeah. you want a comment now. Do you want to make a comment now? I
2: would
0: say that... Um, ...there are renewable sources of energy that don't leave a residue that's deadly for 250,000 years. So I, I don't think that there's an inevitability about nuclear energy and I don't think that Australia, which has incredible potential for renewables, should now in the year 2015 get involved in nuclear power and nuclear waste storage. That's just my, that's my opinion. Thanks,
1: thanks. Uh, another question, thank you. Number two.
2: Hi. Um, I have read that if only 1% of the nuclear weapons which still exist today detonated, the world would be destroyed in its entirety. Do you think the international community is doing enough to prevent the proliferation of these weapons?
0: Yeah. um, I don't know that the world would be destroyed in its entirety, but there would be significant climate effects, and it would be horrendous beyond words. The the world community is doing nowhere near enough uh, to deal with the issue of nuclear weapons. Uh, Countries that have signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty have all agreed, firstly, if they don't have nuclear weapons, never to have them. That's one other reason why Iran should not be allowed to have nuclear weapons, because they signed that treaty. But the other part of it is the five countries that under the treaty are allowed to have nuclear weapons are supposed to be committing to reducing their arsenals, which the United States and Russia have done, but also to abolishing nuclear weapons. And there really needs to be a renewed push for the abolition of nuclear weapons because the alternative, I believe, is accepting that at some point, somewhere, another city is going to be destroyed by a nuclear weapon.
1: Where's that push going to come from, do you think? I mean, yes, Obama has stated he'd like a nuclear-free future. Yeah. But that's not enough. That's not enough to state the vision.
0: I have great respect and admiration for my president on this issue, he gave as his first foreign policy speech in 2009 a very strong statement about abolishing nuclear weapons. And politically, he put himself here. There's absolutely no popular movement, no pressure. I mean, when you look at when the Cold War ended, there were demonstrations throughout the West against nuclear weapons. You know, the biggest political demonstration in American history was in Central Park. There were a million people in Hyde Park and Bonn, so change isn't going to happen because one world leader suggests it's a good idea. There needs to be a movement, and I think this current movement, which, you know, I was at a conference in Vienna just recently, about seven, eight months ago, and 115 countries have signed on to what is now being called the Austrian pledge to abolish nuclear weapons. And uh, what that means is looking at them, as I said, in the same way as landmines, cluster munitions, as fundamentally inhumane things. There, there, are roughly, there are roughly 200 countries in the world and there are only nine that have nuclear weapons. And somehow the other 190 are in existence still.
1: The dynamic in the Cold War was that Russia and America having uh, nuclear weapons was a, a deterrent. It was a peace, mm-hmm. a, a peace gesture, ironically. You don't see anything like that dy- dynamic between uh, Pakistan and India
0: at all. No, I do. I, I, you know, there are people who oppose nuclear weapons who say that they have no deterrent importance of, uh, whatsoever and that they argue that... The Soviet Union would never have invaded Western Europe anyway, and I think that deterrence actually works, in the sense of what deterrence is, is you're saying to another country, if you attack me, I'm going to kill all the civilians in your country. It's essentially a form of hostage-taking. It's Mm -hmm. taking the civilian population of your adversary hostage. Now, that's effective until one day It's not. There's nothing physically to prevent your adversary from attacking you. It's a psychological state of mind, and unfortunately, in the 21st century, we have ideologies that are celebrating the slaughter of civilians, that are celebrating the destruction of buildings of enormous cultural significance, and that think that dying for the cause is a way to get to heaven. Uh, Nuclear deterrence is meaningless Mm. in that sort of situation. Mm. And in order for nuclear deterrence to work, even in secular societies, you have to have weapons on hair trigger alert ready to be launched at a moment's notice. So I do believe that nuclear deterrence helped to prevent a third world war between the United States and Russia, but it almost caused one too. And we were very, very lucky to get out of the Cold War without hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people being killed, how much longer will that kind of luck prevail?
1: And that's the question for today, isn't it? Thank you very much. Number one. Thank you for your research into this, Mr. Schlosser. Um, So the anecdotes about human error certainly are discomforting, but I was wondering, if we are, I can't help but feel that we are missing a greater element in this in the sense in, in that the political ideology that ensures the continued existence of nuclear weapons and the fact that every effort, I suppose the effort into um, disarming them and planning for future storage and neutralization is um, in disproportion to the effort that is going into development of it. I wonder if you share that that view that beyond human error, there is political, political barriers that need to be broken down. And in the course of your research, if you can illuminate maybe three points that um, targets those barriers.
0: I think Thank one you. of the biggest barriers is just the mentality that these weapons confer prestige in any way. Uh, you have a country like Pakistan, which has a gross domestic product that is one-sixth that of Australia, and yet has a population nine times the size of Australia. Uh, and yet the nuclear weapons program gets billions and billions of dollars and is seen as turning Pakistan into a world power. The same is true for North Korea, which has starvation amongst its people, but is, still considers that nuclear weapons are a sign of prestige. Uh, there are countries that have embarked on nuclear weapons programs and then decided not to build them. Uh, Latin America is a nuclear-free zone, and yet Brazil and Argentina certainly had the capability to build nuclear weapons. Uh, South Africa, we now believe, had nuclear weapons, and uh, before the ending of apartheid, dismantled its program. So maybe, and this sounds very idealistic, but I think it's essential to survival that maybe we come up with other measures of national greatness that have to do with levels of education, uh, housing, health care, and not uh, megatonnage of nuclear weapons. Mm. Because if we don't shift that consciousness, terrible things are going to happen. Not necessarily here, not necessarily in the United States, but India and Pakistan. I talked about the compression of time. Uh, A missile from India to Pakistan or vice versa, five to six minutes. Uh, If there's a period of high tension, whoever shoots first in a nuclear war is more likely to come out better off. So there will be enormous pressure for one of those sides to use their nuclear weapons. And if they have a computer glitch or if they have the kind of technological problems that we did during the Cold War, you could even have a nuclear war based on a mistake. So there's not an easy so- solution, but I feel like we have to be pushing in that direction.
1: We, we, we have to finish. So I'll just take these two questions in a row, just if you could ask them, because you've been waiting and, and uh, I'll get into trouble, but that's OK. Just yeah. two, we've got two more minutes for the event. Okay.
2: Um, so, with nuclear technology, there's a lot of risk. There's the risk that the uh, waste will be dumped illegally somewhere, possibly in a poorer country. There's the risk of a technological failure, as you've been describing. There is the risk that one country will drop a bomb on another. And now there seems to be this other risk that if one country begins to decommission the bombs, it will then become more vulnerable or seem more vulnerable to outsiders. So, given all of these different risks and the complexity... Where do you begin with this process of trying to get less nuclear technology in the world today? Yeah. Okay. Could we just take that question as Mm -hmm. well? Um, Yeah, sure. Uh, With the uh, human and mechanical frailties that you've discussed, do you think we're more at risk from, say, domestic accidents or from accidental launches? And if it would be a domestic accident, would that lead, likely lead on to a, a sort of launch scenario?
1: Both related, all fantastic questions. Thank you for that. Go for it.
0: Uh, there's there's so many.
1: <laughs> Answer all those questions. Solve the so world's many, problems.
0: <laughs> there's so many parts to that problem of where to start and different people may want to start in different places. So campaigning against, I'm an opponent of nuclear energy. I have friends who are environmentalists who think it's the solution. I think that. It's un- it's unbelievable that we would have an energy source that we would then have waste that we're condemning future generations to deal with the consequences of it. And again, m- my studies of complex technological systems make me believe we're just not up to it. I mean, at Fukushima, you know, it's still uninhabitable around that uh, that those reactors four years later. And um, that could have been even more catastrophic. So some people might want to oppose uh, nuclear energy. Other people might want to get involved in the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which is following the model of the effort to ban landmines to get as many countries as possible to declare that they are going to be nuclear weapon free. And I'm not delusional into thinking that nuclear weapons are going to be abolished next week. If the numbers come down and come down and come down, the world is safer, and I guarantee you, God forbid, a nuclear weapon would destroy a city anywhere in the world. You would have an anti-nuclear movement that would be overwhelming in its strength, but I'd like to hope that we don't need for that to happen to start eliminating nuclear weapons. Uh, In terms of what's most probable, I think that a nuclear war involving the United States and Russia was much more likely during the Cold War than it is today. I still think there is a risk, especially after Ukraine. Our weapon systems are old. The officers who are in charge of them don't have the same experience that the officers had in the Cold War. But the most probable source of a nuclear detonation is either an accident involving one of our own weapons of Russia. I mean, Russia had a fire with one of its uh, nuclear submarines that had 16 missiles, four warheads on each missile, just a few years ago, and the fire burned out of control on this submarine in Murmansk, and they had to sink the submarine and flood it to put out the fire, and that could have been catastrophic. Um, it's that or terrorists getting a nuclear weapon. And again, I'm not apocalyptic, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I do believe we need to be aware and we need to try to do something to prevent it from happening. Thank you. Eric Schlosser.